There are 43 radio stations within listening range of Peoria. And I will confess to not listening to any of them, with the only occasional exception being WCBU, uh, Peoria Public Radio at 899, uh, on my way to and from work. But the drive at 93.3 claims to be the number one station for the hits of the 70s and 80s. And WIRL at 1027 features good time oldies. What makes these kind of stations so popular? Well, there are few things as enduring as a classic song. I Walk the Line by Johnny Cash, 1956. I Can't Get No Satisfaction by The Stones, 65. Good Vibrations by The Beach Boys, 1966. What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, 1971. Hey Jude by The Beatles. Stairway to Heaven, Led Zeppelin. Billie Jean, Michael Jackson. Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. Hotel California by the Eagles, White Christmas by Bing Crosby, the most popular song ever recorded. There's just something powerful and memorable about hearing a classic song, isn't there? Uh, You hear it over and over again. And in many ways, we just never get tired of hearing them. Well, we're heading into the fourth week of studying uh, the short New Testament letter of 1 John and a series of sermons that we've titled Finding Real Life in God's Great Story. And uh, some of us might feel like this letter is an oldie station with a very short playlist. And you kind of think, you know, I've heard this classic song before. In fact, for three chapters now, we've heard the same three songs over and over and over again. The first song, God is love and that we should love one another. The second song is that right belief and right behavior are both necessary in the Christian life that neither is sufficient by itself. And the third song is that in the kingdom, truth seldom stands alone. Rather, we live in the radical middle of tension between two universally uh, uh, equally true truths. For instance, the kingdom of God is already here. The kingdom of God is not yet here. We're saved by faith alone. We're saved by a faith that works uh, We are victorious. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. We have been forgiven. And at the same time, we are weak and vulnerable to temptation and sin. We live in the radical middle of those two equally universal truths. Well, in today's message on 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be challenged and encouraged once again by the Apostle John's classic oldie to love each other because God's loved us. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for the beauty and the power of a brand new day. Gorgeous weather. Thank you, God. Your faithfulness is new every morning. Thank you for the gifts of life and light and soundness of mind and healthy bodies that enable us to gather together. We pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. Lord, today we're just inspired to bless your name. We pray that you would uh, come and visit us by your Holy Spirit as the church gathers. You, Lord, know what we need better than we do ourselves. So bring your kingdom. May your kingdom come on the earth, even as it is in heaven. May your will be done. Not just here in this room, but right next door in Vineyard Kids and in the nursery. Lord, we desire for your powerful presence to be at work in our lives, in our family, in, in, in our church family, and in our communities. 
Put power on your word to our life today in your name. Amen. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd like to invite you to open to 1 John chapter 4. It's towards the end of the New Testament. Um, 1 John is one of the, uh, the last five books of the Bible to be written. And so John, the apostle, in his old age, is now writing with the perspective of Christianity having been around for about uh, 60 years or so. And he's writing with the perspective of a seasoned saint at, at the, in the closing chapter of his life. 1 John chapter 4, let's begin reading verses uh, 1 to 7. Dear friends, don't believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world, and this is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard, is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you belong to God, my dear children. You've already won a victory over these people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people belong to this world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint and the world listens to them. But we belong to God. And those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they don't listen to us. And this is how we know if anyone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. Now, these warnings in the first six verses of 1 John 4 make better sense if we remember the context into which John is writing. The people to whom John was crafting the letter were in danger of being at best thoroughly confused and at worst blown totally off track by the prophets and teachers with their different ideas and teaching. Apparently, John's readers were in danger of uh, having a tendency to accept uncritically any teaching that claimed to be inspired. One group of false prophets taught uh, what came to later be known as Gnosticism, a religion that specialized in secret inside knowledge. The word comes from the Greek uh, gnosis, Gnosticism, knowledge or revelation. And the Gnostics taught that the spirit was holy and the flesh was evil. And so uh, by gaining their special insight or knowledge, one could entirely escape the effects of the physical material world and enter this realm of the pure spirit. To the Gnostics, it was unthinkable that Jesus, the Messiah, could have come in the flesh because they said he's a spiritual being. And they were convinced that Jesus could not have compromised his pure, holy, spiritual identity by having anything to do with the evil flesh, the dirty, sordid, physical stuff that needed to eat and drink and urinate and defecate and sleep and eventually die. So they said that Jesus only seemed to be human. Well, John says here, you you have to have the right beliefs about Jesus. You're not free to just believe whatever you want to believe about God or his son Jesus, for that matter. It's not true that 
God's at the top of the mountain, and it really doesn't matter what road you take to get there as long as you uh, get to the top of the mountain. You see, if you wanted to travel from Peoria to Madison, Wisconsin, you can't just take whatever road you wish and end up there. Uh, if you take I-74 East, you're going to end up in Indianapolis. No, you better, you better take 29 North along the river or just a f- few miles farther east. You take 39 North, and then you'll end up in Madison. So it's not true that you can just take whatever old, old road you want to get to God. It's not true that you can just believe whatever you want to about Jesus. John echoes Jesus' warning against false teachers and prophets, people who, under the guise of inspiration, would lead you down the, the wrong road of wrong beliefs. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. The Apostle John warned against false teachers in Acts 20. He said, I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. And the Apostle Peter also warned against false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. There will be false teachers among you. Every New Testament author warns against false teachers, false prophets. I can imagine that John was struggling as he watched people in whose lives he had invested and taught as their pastor, being swept away by the false teachers who claimed a special revelation or insight, you know, to authenticate their now new particular doctrine, Gnosticism. And in the same way, quite honestly, there are many, many voices that are clamoring for our attention today. It's even more prevalent with digital media than it's ever been before. Many claiming that they've received special insight, special revelation, Now, John is clear and direct about how his listeners could test the prophets to see if they were legitimate. Did you notice that in verse 2? This is how we know if if they have the Spirit of Christ. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. Now, to be sure, this is not the only criteria. It is the one necessary for John's audience that Jesus, the Son of God, came in a flesh-and-blood human body. There are other critical litmus tests by which we can identify right beliefs or right teachers. For instance, there's the moral test. Do the teachers have godly character? Doctrinal test. Does the teaching align with the rest of the Bible and historical orthodoxy in the church? And thirdly, there's the fruit test. What result does the teaching actually produce in the lives of its adherents? Is it increasing Christ-likeness, love for God, love for people, uh, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Uh, walking in freedom from sin, walking in the light, or is it increasing self-centeredness and works of the flesh or slavery and sinful habits and lifestyle, walking in darkness? It is part of the church's job in general and 
the pastor's job in particular to feed the sheep, that is to teach right doctrine, and to care for the sheep, steer them away from false teaching, wrong doctrine. And so in this spirit, there may be occasions where the vineyard will publish a position paper on a particular teaching or emphasis or movement, although in our 30-some year history, there have been very few. Or I may, at the Holy Spirit's direction, bring clarity on an issue that perhaps is debilitating or destructive or just confusing, for that matter, by offering what I consider an informed perspective on all the sides of the issue. But I'll just say in general, we're going to stick with what our founder, John Wimber, called the main and the plain. We're going to love God, we're going to love others, and we're going to live it out. You know, we're going to genuinely experience God, we're going to authentically connect with others, we're going to compassionately and powerfully extend the kingdom of God, and we're going to radically change our world. We're going to stay with those four things, because that's pretty much going to keep us busy till Jesus comes back. And frankly, my personal ethos is this. I've got more confidence in the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct us as we live in a Spirit-empowered community doing life together. I've got more confidence in the Holy Spirit to guide us and protect us than I, than I do the devil to distract uh, and, and deceive and derail us through false teaching and doctrine. Like the Apostle John, I believe, verse 4, that the Holy Spirit in you is greater than the Spirit in the world. Paul, the Apostle Paul, had incredible confidence in the Holy Spirit to lead and guide the church. And Peter, the same way. Frankly, I I just kind of grow weary of people in ministries who feel called as God's moral and doctrinal police. It wearies me. You know, people who are always living in fear of end-time deception, and so then they post their status updates on Facebook and fix everybody. I feel you know, like nobody ever really changes because you post anything on Facebook. Did you know that? Did you know that? Just helping you out here. Uh, but really, I mean, so many people are, like, afraid of the deception and the great falling away in the end times that, that they're just, like, always regurgitating, like, the right doctrine and who's wrong doctrine, what ministry and movement is, why they're unbiblical. And I'm just like, oh, can we just, like, positively stay focused on the main and the plain instead of negatively be focused on all the paranoia about false doctrine? I'm not minimizing it, and I'll call to attention when it's necessary, but, you know, Let's just help people follow the resurrected Jesus and find real life. All right, that's where we're going to be. We're going to stay in the radical middle uh, of the main and the plain. The classic Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, was named by Rolling Stone Magazine's list of top 500 songs of all time, published in December 04, as number 362. I know you probably didn't know that, but I like Rolling Stone magazine, and I will confess to having been a subscriber in times past. (laughs) (laughs) It was written by John Lennon, the song, uh, was written by Lennon in 1967. Lennon was fascinated by the power and ability of slogans, short, memorable slogans, to, to unite people. 
And all you need is love. It was a quite simple song. And the chorus uh, was quoted, has been, millions of times ever since. It rings in your mind. Okay, let's all together now. All you need is love. Bum, ba, dum, bum, bum. All you need is love. Bum, ba, dum, bum. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. She loves you, yeah, yeah. No, no, just. <laughs> see, see, some of you were going there. I know you were. Isn't the classic song powerful? You see, it just sticks in your brain, you know, like a cockleburr on a sock. It just won't ever go away. Now, as we read the next 14 verses in John, 1 John 4, I begin to wonder if John Lennon's idea for the chorus for this classic got ripped out of the Bible. I wonder, because we're going to read it. 1 John 4, let's continue reading verses 7 and on. Dear friends, let's continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Then anyone who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one's ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we've seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who confess that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we've put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we'll not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we've not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. Someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister. That person's a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? He's given us this command. Those who love God must also love their Christian brothers and sisters. Now, when we read 1 John 4, 7 to 21, it's kind of like dialing into 93.3 The Drive and hearing, all you need is love by the Beatles, isn't it? You hear the chorus over and over again. In his book, The Letters of John, John Stott, one of the former, um, who's since passed away, one of the the foremost uh, uh, commentators on on the scriptures, actually quotes William Tyndale's commentary published in 1531, titled The Exposition of the First Epistle of St. John. And he says, Tyndall wrote in this chapter, John singeth his old song again. 
Now, for the third time in his letter, John takes up the issue of right behavior, loving others, as absolutely the necessary companion to right belief. Both are necessary. Now, statistics aren't everything, but at times they can be quite revealing. The word love, or some form of it, appears 28 times in these 14 verses. There's no really need to even ask, what's John's subject matter here, is there? This is what John most wants to say. Love is what John has on his heart, in his mind. I think the connection is this. So John stressed that Jesus the Messiah is indeed, verse 2, come in the flesh. This right belief about Jesus is essential. But it doesn't stop there. So, you see, he's saying, like, right belief is absolutely essential. If Jesus is not God, the living God, come in the flesh to die for sin on the cross and then be physically resurrected in his body to life again, then you do not have the eternal life-giving gospel. That belief is necessary. But it's not just a dead, dry orthodoxy. It's not just a, a belief as in, you know the right answer to pass on the final exam of doctrine. That, that's not the point. The point is that, you no, know, who Jesus is and what he demonstrated is the core of Christianity. Christianity is Christ. The Christian faith grows out of a belief in Jesus as the one true and living God who has revealed himself as love incarnate. And then those of us who hold this faith and embrace it as our means of hope and life must also reveal this same love towards others. It's that, it's that we not must just believe, but we must believe and behave. We've got to live as Jesus lived. We've got to love others in Christ-like loving ways. And the proof that we're a disciple, John is saying, is not just what we say we believe, but in fact, what we do. We love others. First John 2.6, those who say they live in God should live their life as Jesus did. So John is continually appealing to the life of Christ's example to be what we should be. Easy for John to write, not so easy for us to live, is it? So then John strengthens his argument in three ways, that we're to love others for three compelling reasons. It's like he's singing this chorus three more times. All you need is love, dun, 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 dun. Okay, you, you getting the drill now? That, that's what people are hearing as they read the letter. So three ways, because God is love, because God loved us, and because when we love one another, God's love is made complete. Let's unpack those for the rest of the morning. So the first thing he says is that we're to love each other because God is love. Dear friends, let's continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. Verse 8, for God is love. We're to love others because God's eternal nature is love, and God now lives in us. 
We all know that genetics is an incredibly complicated study of heredity and inheritance, and that's about as far as we go. We, we might know a little about, about Mendel and his peas, but, but really that's about it. Well, let me give you a, like a, a master's degree in genetics in, in 20 seconds. Parents pass traits on to their kids. There you have it. Through gene transmission. Genes are not what you wear, but they're located on 23 pairs of chromosomes, and they consist of some big fancy word I can't pronounce, and we abbreviate it, DNA. And DNA carries the genetic material of the parent, and it's transmitted into the child. That's why some of you have your parents' eyes, their skin uh, color, your your um, your maybe your hair color, freckles or dimples, or your predisposition to certain illnesses, or in some cases, yeah, in some cases, ugh, their personality and temperament. We are the product of our parents' seed. Now, the Apostle John has been telling us for three chapters that we are children of God. Chapter 3, verse 9, he said, People conceived and brought into life by God don't make a practice of sin. How could they? Because God's seed is deep within them, making them who they are. God's seed, the word in the original language in the Greek is sperma, from which we translate sperm. God's seed, sperma, is in us as his children. And because God is love, therefore love is in us, and we should love. That's John's argument. God's in you, God is love, therefore we should love. Now, sometimes Christ followers just don't know what's in us. I mean, we, we're just like ignorant. We're, maybe we're new in the faith, or we've been in the faith for a period of time and we're untrained. Sometimes we don't know what's inside of us. At other times, there are capacities and, and abilities that just need to be called out. You, you, you know you have a vague awareness, and it just needs to be stirred up and called out. And, and I think John is calling out the capacity to love all people that's already inside, and you already know it. No one who is a follower of Jesus, who's received the birth from above and is the child of God, could ever argue well, I just can't love, or I just don't have the capacity, or I'm just not really a true loving person, or, you know, that person is really too unlovely. Those excuses don't cut the mustard. Because if you're a follower of God, his seed is in you. God is love, therefore the capacity to love is in you. And I join with John calling out the love right now that's already inside of you. It's in there. And part of the job of, of the pastor teacher is to stir it up, to fan into flame what's already been deposited. God is in you, and God is love. The second strengthening of the argument that John gives us is in verses 9 to 11. We're to love each other because God loved us. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life or the life of the future age, real life now. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. So John is saying God didn't just say that he loved us. 
But verse 11, or verse 9, he showed how much he loved us by sending his son Jesus to die. So the coming of Jesus is a concrete, historical revelation of the love of God. Now, friends, I understand that there are countless times in this evil, fallen, broken, sinful, hurting world where we are actually tempted to doubt God's love, right? Circumstances uh, can scream that God is cruel and that God is unloving. And John says when these uh, thoughts flood our consciousness, we are to look to the cross to see the love of God the Father displayed for all people everywhere. Jesus, the real flesh and blood, Jesus, the Son of God, paying with his life the debt that we owed and could not pay. A concrete, historical display of the love of God. And then John says, because God loved us that much, verse 11, we surely ought to love others as well. Now, this isn't salvation by works or earning our way into heaven or by like working hard to to merit forgiveness or uh, trying to gain God's good graces or working for salvation or for eternal life, but rather uh, out of a profound appreciation for what God has done for us in Jesus, being therefore willing to sacrifice on behalf of others. We're to love one another because God has loved us. And then the third and concluding argument that we're to love each other because when we love one another, John says, God's love is made complete. Now, it's an incredibly powerful statement. There's a way in which God's love is not yet complete or mature until his children love other people. His love is, verse 12, brought to full expression when his children love others. Kind of scary, isn't it, actually, to think that we have a role to play in God's love being made visible and growing in completion in the world today? God actually trusts us with that? Whoa! I don't know if I I were God if I would have done that. I know I wouldn't have with me. Think about that. God trusts us as his children with the capacity to bring his love to a measure of completion that is otherwise lacking. It's not just that Jesus is our example of love and we're to follow it, although that is certainly true. But John is saying, look, no one's ever really seen God, and we don't know who God is until we look at Jesus. Okay, that's good. And then he says, and now people really don't know what God's love is like until you as his children learn to love others. Whoa. People don't really know what God's love is like until they see it revealed through the love of his children. So think of it this way. Your cantankerous co-worker, your ugly acting family member, your bitter neighbor, your mean-spirited boss or ex-spouse, that annoying person in your three neighborhoods, They don't see who Jesus is until they experience your love for them. Mm, That's sobering, isn't it? 
They don't see Jesus until they experience your love for them. That's what John is telling us. Now, in a in a reactive way, that is when you overlook an offense, you forgive an insult, you overlook or let go of a desire for revenge, you ignore a critical comment or an unkind remark, you you embrace what I simply call the shrug factor. Oh, well, you shrug. Oh, well. And then in a proactive way, when you choose to bless someone, when you help them or serve them or take an interest in their life, or you listen non-judgmentally, or you ask a sensitively timed question, or you live the golden rule, which says, do unto others as you would have them do to you. It's a proactive engagement. So either in a reactive or a proactive way, when we love others in that way, we cause God's love to mature and come to completeness. When you choose to love people in not only what you say, but what you do, not faking it by being therapy nice, praise the Lord. Oh, oh, help me, Jesus. When you choose to love authentically and honestly through the power of the Holy Spirit and really love people, then God's love is brought to full expression and people see Jesus. They hear the gospel, some for the very first time. And in this sense, we have a vital role to play in sharing the love of God to the world. Now, sadly, through history, it would be hard to argue that the church has failed miserably on many occasions in this mission. You know, we've huddled together on Sunday mornings or Saturday nights or whenever in an effort to, you know, remain unspotted from, from the world, rehearsing our doctrinal purity and emphasizing moral uprightness when we've really failed to get our hands dirty by the real kingdom work of just loving people. Now, on the other hand, there have been millions of times through history where Jesus followers have actually gotten it right. And we've loved people into the kingdom. And maybe you were one of those people who actually saw the love of God, like in a flesh and blood body, in a person. And, and it was attractive and powerful, wasn't it? And it was part of what like catapulted you from a life of sinful, self-centered living into the kingdom because you experienced the love of Jesus in a person who actually cared for you, administered to you, and, and prayed for you. You weren't their project. They, they were just loving you because of the way Jesus loves. They, maybe you, heard the chorus of the song, All You Need Is Love, two or three or a hundred times. i got a question. Who is the Holy Spirit right now indicating to you that you need to love? I would suspect already there are rumbling around in the corners of your mind or up tucked on a shelf in where you haven't looked for a while, the name of a person or persons whom... God is nudging you to love in this way, in the way that John's been singing now for three, now four chapters. Who is the neighbor where you work or live or do life to whom God is directing you to love? I'm going to let that sit a while. Hmm. You see, I don't want church to be a place where we hear a sermon, deposit an offering if the, if the mood strikes you, and then sing a closing ditty, and then you go home to live life on your own terms and for your own pleasure. I, I don't want church like that. I want church where the Holy Spirit comes to actually cause us to, to really grow more towards Christ-likeness. And so this is one of those questions. Who is it this week 
that the Holy Spirit is challenging us. Who is the neighbor that he's challenging us to love? Well, John concludes by indicating that real love banishes all fear. I like to think of it this way. Once we learn to give ourselves away to others in the way that God gave himself for us, there isn't anything to be afraid of any longer, is there? Our lives are no longer our own. And so there's nothing left to fear, especially, John says, the judgment. When we stand before Jesus. You see, I, I, I like to think of it this way. Bottom line. You can't, you can't fear losing what isn't yours to keep anyway. That is your life, your love, your time, energy, and resources. They're not yours. They're gifts from God. And when we give away our lives in love, John says, you can face him with confidence, verse 17, because you're living like Jesus. Well, we've, over the last four weeks now, we're, we're growing and discovering that our place in God's great story is really about singing the same old classic song over and over again. All you need is love. This is part of our purpose, our place in God's great story. And as we grow to be more Christ-like because we love, the great news is that we'll experience real life. Love, joy, peace, a deep sense of commitment, contentment, and purpose in God's destiny over our lives. Lord, I just pray that today you would cause us to grow more and more like you, that you would put power on your word to our lives, and and that we'd respond to the invitation of 1 John. And Lord, uh, it's really simple to hear. It's not so simple to to live, and so I pray you'd put power on it to our lives today and that we'd be more conformed to your image. And now, Lord, as we transition to a time of receiving an offering and then worshiping you in song, I pray that you'd use these two vehicles, Lord, uh, to accomplish your bigger purposes in our life, and they would serve as opportunities for us to declare not just with what we say, but what we do, that we love you. And we want our lives to count for you. Bless the gifts, Lord, that are given today, the sacrifices that have been made, uh, the hard work that's gone into earning money, uh, and, Lord, the the, the radical uh, contrariness to the world that says to seek, to, to, to get money to keep. But, but, Lord, you say to give because it, it's more blessed to give. I pray you put power on these gifts. And Lord, for those that desire to give but can't, I pray that you'd answer their prayers for new jobs or better jobs or financial blessing. Receive these gifts, Lord, and the songs that we sing for what they are. Amen.